You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and thank you for tuning in. We have a great podcast lined up for you today here at RSAC, and we'll be discussing protecting data and the supply chain with my guests, Edna Conway and Diana Kelly. Here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review us on your preferred podcast app so that you can be notified when new tracks are posted. And now it's my pleasure to ask both Edna and Diana to take a moment to introduce themselves so that we can dive into today's topic. Edna, let's start with you. Well, thank you. It's certainly my privilege to be here, and I'm lucky enough to serve as the VP of Security Risk and Compliance for the life cycle of Microsoft's intelligent cloud infrastructure. And let me just add a bit of clarity about that when I say security, uh, what I mean. So secure for me means ensuring the integrity of every operation, transaction, and workflow across our cloud ecosystem to deliver the productivity that our customers expect free of compromise. And when I talk about resilience, what I mean is including proactively monitoring and preparing for disruption, which is a great topic for us given the year in which we find ourselves, Casey, um, so that continuous quality service can be delivered. Hi, Casey, and hi, everybody. Uh, Great to be here today. Diana Kelly, I am the CTO and co-founder at Security Curve. I do the CISO and advisory work, and I have been in IT for well over 30 years now, which is crazy, but uh, certainly seeing a lot in terms of what's changed and the need for supply chain and how important it's become as we build and, and secure our ecosystems. It is an absolute pleasure to have both of you here with us today, and I'm fortunate to do a lot of work with both of you because you are both members of our program committee as well, and you two are the chairs of the Protecting Data and Supply Chain track, so uh, very much looking forward to what you've selected for us for our June conference, but today I want to start by asking each of you, you know, we talk about supply chain, we talk about this life cycle and protecting governance, but what do we mean when we talk about supply chain? What does that mean for you? Let's start with Edna and then Diana. You know, there should be a similar answer from everyone, but as somebody who's been working on security and risk (laughs) management in the supply chain for the last 35 years, I am always amazed that there are divergent answers to this. So I'll give you mine, which I think is pretty uniformly adopted. Um, It really means the end-to-end life cycle of a service, a solution, or a product. So it really starts with that, you know, first crazy idea that somebody might have, and you do some research and experimentation, and then it moves on to how you design and and, uh, how you actually plan and how you actually go out and get what you need to deliver that service or solution and make it or develop it or do both, um, and how you deliver it, how you sustain it, and what happens after it is end of life, end of service, and hopefully, if it has tangible elements to it, reborn and reused given our commitment to environmental sustainability. So just think about the old days, you would say, from cradle to grave, that was always used with a T. 
tangible product, Casey, but you can use the same model with a solution or a service or software. And I think I always remind everybody, here's the easiest way to remember what a supply chain is. Nobody delivers a capability or a solution or makes anything from nothing. There's always a global interconnected ecosystem that every human being, every enterprise, every community, and government relies on. And boy, oh boy, if you did not know how important supply chain was before, you surely do know today as every aspect of our lives has been upended by the impacts of the pandemic on our global supply chains. It's almost a household term now, right? Supply chain. Who doesn't know? Who isn't familiar with that? But Diana, go ahead. Thank you. I was just going to say, I love what Edna was saying about making sure that we look at this as cradle to grave. But very simply, a supply chain is the stuff that goes into the stuff we buy, including how we get to the things that we buy. And, and as we talked about, supply chain in the past couple of years has been really um, upended and partly for many different reasons. First, everybody was just buying a bunch of toilet paper in the United States. Sort of, We weren't sure why, but everybody was buying toilet paper out of fear we wouldn't be able to get it. Then we couldn't get certain things because the packages that shampoo was going into couldn't be manufactured quickly enough because there were outages at the at the plants. And then we look at, at what we're facing now with there are issues with stocking the shelves again, and it's because so many people are out sick. So there are different reasons that supply chain disrupts. And very often when you talk to companies, the executives may look at supply chain as the widgets we need to build the widgets that we sell. So if they're not widget sellers, and widget can be any physical, thing, they may think, well, we don't have our own supply chain. But as Edna was pointing out, supply chain is really about anything that we're buying. So it, sure, it could mean laptops. It could be physical things that we're buying or we're creating for an auto manufacturer, for example. But it's also those services and software. And that's where we've seen a big switch in focus and understanding of how important it is. The software you buy and the software dependencies of that software that your vendor supplies to you, that can matter, as we saw recently with Log4j, for example. Um, the services that you buy from your partners and who they partner with, their own suppliers, so your fourth-party suppliers and fifth-party, that can matter to you and your security and your overall resiliency stance. So supply chain is really, it's very large and encompassing, and it really impacts every organization, whether you know it or not. And I think, as Edna was pointing out, a lot more companies realize that they they have it now, but it, it really goes well beyond just we don't make widgets, so it doesn't matter if our sub-widgets aren't available. It's about the stuff that you run your company with, the partners that you do business with, and making sure that you understand all of their dependencies and risks, too. You said something that's really important, right, which is it's about everything. I think there's something folks forget, mm -hmm. and, and we've certainly started out thinking about, uh, I'll use Diana's word, widget. Uh, and then we moved to services. So if you think about, for example, the a cloud service, you're tapping into whatever that cloud service uses to deliver that capability to you. I'm going to offer another thought that I think our eyes are opening to because we've been talking, and I know Diana and I have been talking about this. I've had the privilege of talking together with her for years now about digitization. And a lot of people have worried about what does that mean for the human interaction and the human participation. 
let's remember people are actually one of the most fundamental parts of the supply chain. You just heard Diana mm-hmm. point out. You can't wash your hair because somebody is in the plant that makes the plastic that gets molded into the container that your shampoo comes in. So guess what's at the core of that? It's called us, the people. Never let that be forgotten. I think that's so important. And I remember months ago when we were going through all of the submissions for this track, I remember asking each of you, you know, what do we mean by supply chain? Are we talking about supply chain a la, you know, toilet paper and shampoo, or are we talking about, you know, the software supply chain? And I love that you've um, sort of outlined those distinctions, but also the commonalities there. I would love if you could speak to our listeners about how to inventory and understand your immediate software supply chain dependencies. Diana, do you want to start this one off? Yeah, and this one I think is weighing a lot on a lot of people now, too, because of the introduction of uh, the S-bomb the software bill of materials, which is something that was long overdue. Uh, For very long, we would buy software either off the shelf from a commercial supplier or we would work with a company that was building the software for us. But we sort of thought as a a monolith, like I'm buying the software, you give me the software, and I don't really know what the different components are in it. But there are different components, especially nowadays where it's very rare to find software, even from a large commercial vendor, where every component and every feature from the the ground up was written by that vendor. We use libraries, we reuse functions from other companies, other developers, and that's that's not a bad thing. It actually allows us to go much faster as we build more and more software more quickly. But it does mean that we have, as you just said, Casey, we have to understand what's in it. So to inventory it, start at the very top. What software do you have? And that's as simple as what products do I have? What licenses do I have? What cloud services and software as a service am I using out in the cloud? And then to get to that next level to truly understand the nested dependencies within that software, talk to the providers of the software. If they have an SBOM or software bill of materials, That's great. That means that they've already identified all of the dependencies for you, so you can keep an inventory of that. If they don't have it, then talk to them about what really goes into making that software, what the dependencies are, what libraries they're using, for example, what other features, functions they may be pulling in, um, the APIs that they're connecting into in order to make their whole solution so that you can then add that to your inventory. So definitely start at that top level, and it'll give you some view across what you're using at the organization, but don't forget that that top level isn't telling the whole story, so you want to get down to that next level. And if your vendor has an up-to-date F-bomb for you, all the better. Yeah, I think that's a great way of describing it, Diana. We're all really well familiar with build systems and and capturing our development of code in a dedicated build environment. And at best, those environments allow for, you know, digital code signing and release notes and bug tracking and SAST, and then you take it out and do DAST. But what we haven't been perfect at is exactly what Diana articulated, which is meticulously identifying all the third-party code that is incorporated into our own and then lifting up the cover and saying, if you think about when you, you, know, you buy food, 
right? You know the fundamental elements of what you're buying, but you may have an allergy. Therefore, you need to now know the ingredients. Do you go one level below and say, huh, I wonder who makes that because there is one particular company that I have a tremendous adverse reaction to, and there are two others that I don't. That's where we're going with the concept of inventorying and tracking your third-party software supply chain. I do think as developers continuously integrate in a broader set of code, we really need real-time tracking so we can more swiftly identify Mm -hmm. the vulnerabilities that may be deeply embedded into our own code. But I want to remind everybody We need to do this for reasons other than just security. It's why I keep saying we need to blend security and resiliency together. How about just plain old-fashioned quality? (laughs) Where where do you find the third party that forgot to sign the code and you want to go check something? Or you've done pen testing and that pen testing reveals something that may not necessarily be directly related to security, but it's a gap in connection that is going to cause a failure in the expectation of the software user. You'd like to go talk with them and check on something. You need to know who that is, what they did, where they did it, and where you've put it to evaluate whether or not that's an issue. So for me, generating build manifests is an essential element of capturing the key fields we need to know to make what we actually will talk about when we get into the details of an SBOM. And I, I guess I'd put in a pitch as well for, you know, you said, how do you inventory and track? Collaborative hub for real-time multi-party mm-hmm. code development have been around for a while, and they can be an effective tool to assist. Again, you're right back to understanding who owns the hub, who contributes to the hub, um, and what the hub does to ensure the integrity and security practices of itself and its users. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Also, companies that may have gone down the software composition analysis or STA route, especially if they were looking at they had a lot of libraries, open source libraries in use, they wanted to make sure that they were on the most up-to-date versions. They've kind of got a, a, a little bit of a leg up because they've been tracking dependencies for a while. They've got a, a platform in place to do it. So that can help a lot. And then Edna also said something really interesting about penetration testing. When your pen testers are coming in, they're seeing what different services your web application or the application they're testing, they're seeing what those are connecting to, and that can be really valuable. You might want to ask them to report back on that, especially if it's a third-party testing group, because they've been tasked with testing your app, so they're going to tell you where your code has vulnerabilities, but often they see as they're doing that test where your connection points may have vulnerability. They definitely see the connection points. They may also see some vulnerabilities or exposures there. So as they're doing the testing, um, you might want to say to them, hey, if you see that I'm using a form builder that doesn't look right to you, include that in the report. Don't just tell me where I've got you know issues with my HTML headers exposing too much data. Tell me if you see anything that's part of my whole service that I need to look at too. So I just want to follow up on that because we've kind of 
merged the two different actions, right, of inventorying. There's there's the inventorying and understanding of your immediate software supply chain dependencies. But then there's also, as Edna said, the inventory and tracking of your third-party software supply chain. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure that our listeners understand that those are two different questions, right? And so, you know, how are they distinct but, um, I guess, conjoined as well. <laughs> they had better be conjoined twins, let's put it that way, right? I don't know how you can separate them. You can't have a build manifest that articulates what your own internal developers have done without understanding what they've extrapolated from the world of competency that's out there that we can access, whether open source or proprietary, that you're licensing in. So to me, while they need to both be looked at, they need to be reviewed and documented in a similar way and housed in a similar repository. And to the point that Diana made, when you're doing testing, let's recognize that just because a test sounds like, use her example, pen testing, it's for security, it doesn't mean that there isn't valuable information that provides you with inventory insight that could be in your build manifest that validates even the best of the best who already have build manifests long before the executive order on SBOM came into being. Mm-hmm. You still need to say, hmm, let me check and see if it is what I think it is, and just plain old-fashioned updating, right? I don't know how you update if you don't know what's in there. So take the S away from the development life cycle. So it's, it may not be an SDL, but just the development life cycle. <laughs> you need the recipe, unless you're just one of those really gifted cooks who goes into the kitchen and makes things. The rest of us, we need recipes. If the recipe is not available and the recipe isn't updated to the fact that six of your family members have an allergy to ingredient Y, you have a problem on quality not just integrity. Yeah, and I, I, it seems like we always talk about food, Edna. I can't imagine why with the two of us, but I, I, I love the food analogy to help answer your question, Casey, which is, and Edna was, was basically going here, so let me just continue on her path, which is that when you're thinking about the software you create or the widgets you make versus the ones that you buy, it's a little bit like whether you're buying a cookie or you're baking a cookie at your house. In both cases, you've got this cookie in your house and people are going to be eating it. So as Edna pointed out, if you've got a family member that's allergic, it's on you to understand the ingredients in the boxed cookie and the ingredients in the cookie that you make. And as you can imagine, Right when you're making it yourself, you have a little bit more insight. A little, it, it it feels a little bit more transparent. If you buy a cookie and they don't have the ingredients, you're at a bit of a loss. So that's why I talk to software vendors and builders that will give you some level of transparency into the ingredients that they've got either in the software or that they built your widget, let's say a laptop, with. When you make it yourself, you have a little bit more control because you can pick some of those ingredients, but even those ingredients may have other sub-ingredients. And staying on, on food here, um, eggs, for example, if someone has a soy allergy but not an egg allergy, you may think that you're fine putting an egg into food that you're going to feed them. 
Well, actually, you're not, because most layer hens in the United States are fed a soy-based pellet. And so that if you eat eggs that were made from a hen that was eating these soy-based pellets, somebody who's allergic to soy is going to have an allergic response to the food with the eggs in it that you feed them. And that is a little bit like where we get back to, let's loop around back to to software, Log4j, for example, there were third-party commercial vendors that have Log4j in their software. So companies actually had the vulnerability in their organization. They thought, well, I've got the ingredient. I bought this vendor or that vendor. So that's a known entity. But that vendor had that dependency within the software so that you actually have Log4j in your organization, even though you didn't, you, you might not have had it inventoried separately. And that goes back to that first layer, second layer. But as Edna pointed out, they do have to be conjoined because whether you created the software yourself or you bought it, it's still software that's running in your organization. So it's just like it's food you're feeding to your family, whether you made it or you purchased it pre-made. Diana, I love having these conversations with you because you make me feel like I get it. <laughs> you use these analogies <laughs> that are just so human and understandable. And I'm like, wow, I could even do that. That makes so much sense. <laughs> The food really You can works. do it. You do do it. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk about the software bill of materials, the SBOM that's come up quite a bit. And, you know, not so much what it is. I think we know uh, the definition of it. But rather, you know, how can we use SBOMs in practice? And I want to go back to a comment that you made earlier, Diana. You said, you know, if your supplier has an up-to-date SBOM, <laughs> all the better. So, you know, what are sort of the variations and iterations of F-bombs that you want to be aware of as well when we're talking about using these in practice? Yeah, I think that the biggest one is making sure that you've got something that's up to date. Pushing code very quickly is part of what happens. This is the whole CICD. We shift left. We push code all the time. Very large companies that have um, web-based applications, you know, cloud-native mobile applications, they'll push code constantly even throughout the day. So we're really far away from when it was, well, let's take a look at this and we're going to test it before we ship tomorrow or something. I mean, this is we're, we're pushing code all the time. And that means that if there's a new feature needed and a developer realizes that someone has made a really good version of this and they can access it over the web, they can pull in that service, um, then it may make sense to pull it in from a pre-made version already than to incorporate it themselves. So your SBOM from yesterday may not be current because that's the world that we live in. We move very fast with software right now. So the biggest thing is to understand with the vendors that you're working with and with your own dev team, how are you keeping track of the dependencies and how often can it be updated? Right now, there's really not that I know of a great automated version way to pull in all of the dependencies and nested dependencies from all the software that we are both building and we're consuming. Um, I hope that now that there's such a need for it that we'll see some better offerings in the market. But until then, talk to your vendors and talk to your own development team about how they're keeping things up to date. And 
I'm not a fan of saying manual is, is great. You know, automated, very, um, I love automation and it's helped us to do so much. But at this point, really smart manual listing and, and recording of the dependencies within your software is where some companies are. And if you've got very smart product engineers, uh, your whoever's going to be in charge of this, either the, the head of engineering the CTO, the product manager, whoever's got that list of dependencies and is keeping it up to date for that product line, uh, as long as they can keep it up to date, even if it's a spreadsheet, is it ideal? No. Are we at that point of we've got continuous real-time views? Also no. So if look at something with people really staying on top of this, having a process in place so that they know how to update things, start to build some bits of automation into the process so that they can do updates fast. Maybe it goes into a repository, a shared collaborative one, as Edna was pointing out. Uh, that can get you a little bit closer to full automation. Someday we're going to have full automation. We're not there. So we need to have people and processes to make sure that it's getting done now. Let me um, put in my plus one thumb on uh, automation. <laughs> I think the promise of an SBOM can only be realized with machine-readable SBOMs that support automation and tool integration, right? They have to have that. And why? Because at the end of the day, it is at its infancy a set of data. And so applications have to be able to query the data but I'm going to make a proposal that we look at an S-bomb just like any other bill of materials, which and you know we have H-bombs and we have D-bombs. The reality is it's, it's true growth lies in the ability to not just query the data, but process the data. And, and so many folks, you know, me, me among them, have said, please, let's, let's try to minimize the regulatory burden on those of us who are building things into our processes already because sometimes you go down to the denominator of just compliance and that actually takes us to a place that's not the most effective security and integrity and reliance capabilities that we should have. But in this case, I'm going to say if you have the minimum elements and, you know, NTIA, put them out right, you know, you need to know the supplier name, you have to know the component name, you have to know the version to Diana's point, and, you know, let's throw some cryptographic caches in there and a whole host of other things, including who, here's another thought, who, who authored the SBOM data, don't forget the elements of humanity mm -hmm. and the enterprise as well that acts as a person in this case. But where we could get to, let me give you the pipe dream. The pipe dream is full integration on not just querying, but actually processing. So it's integrated into the build process. All so my developer is committing to my code. That's beautiful. It's, I've got version control. I've entered it into the build system. The build system compiles the code. We generate and sign the code and we generate and sign an SBOM. And the SBOM gets published into that environment as a build artifact that gets stored. And along comes Attacker X, and they tamper with the artifact store. It's a good place to go. I like tampering with artifact oh. stores, right? I'm going to replace the genuine artifact with a malicious artifact. And guess what? The next step happens. Release management system says, yep, I've got a release. Here we go. And it took it from the now maliciously altered 
build artifact. It publishes a malicious release artifact to store. Guess what happens? The release management system attempts to verify the malicious artifacts against the signed SBOM. No, verification fails. Tampering alert, the tampered release does not deploy. That's when we have Nirvana, where we can actually use an SBOM to defend against APTs. Wouldn't that be grand? <laughs> Nirvana would be grand, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good goal, right? But, you know, shy of reaching that, how do we in practice use SBOMs um, when it comes to protecting the supply chain and vetting our third-party or fourth-party or downline suppliers? Look, even if it's manual, if you know who, right, I know what supplier, and better yet, I know what component. Um, Even if I just had that and I know where I put it, let's say I don't have the cryptographic cache, right, but if I know those fundamental things, what I can do is implement a vetting process, which, you know, we've done, uh, I've done it in another enterprise as well, where you effectively create an architecture that looks at security criteria, resiliency criteria. But what you do is you apply that architectural set of controls informed by who, number one, what they do for you, and if it's software, where that software is deployed. Because I might care about you know, software that is in the core of my functionality very differently than it's, you know, it's enabling, let's say, a cloud service as opposed to software that is doing something like, I don't know, uh, speech-to-text recognition. Not that that's, you know, unimportant, but may or may not directly affect functionality. And that architectural approach, Casey, allows you to vet based on the nature of what that particular code set and third party do against the controls you put in place, um, leveraging as well, if you can, international standards, certifications, and anything else that they have that shows you what they're doing. And the other way you really want to vet is you want to vet that they are giving you evidence of conformity against those controls. And I think Diana is going to add, and I, I bet she'll take off of this. She said at the beginning, let's remember it's not just the first relationship you have, right? Go back to the cookie. You buy the cookie, you still need to know the ingredient, but the ingredient provider has a supply chain as well, right? And that's really important to know. And that's something you have to build into your vetting process that says, show me how you are actually mandating or at least partnering with your third-party ecosystem to make sure that the standards you've just shown me you adhere to, which I'm very appreciative of, are actually utilized and adhered to successfully down the chain that's your chain. That's where the ticket lies in success. 
Yes, and and looking at this, there's kind of two modes, right? There's acquisition mode and there's ongoing run mode. And in acquisition mode, exactly what Edna is talking about. Do I want to do business with you? Well, how do you create your software or your laptops? And what are the components that go into those? And do I feel comfortable with either those hardware components and the physical one or, or the software components? And then that's how you're making your, your initial acquisition decision and also your own developers as they're building software. Do I trust this library, for example? Um, am I going to put that into my build? But then there's also the other really, really important thing in terms of security here is what happens when things go sideways. So that was a great library when you incorporated it, but what about now? Or uh, we just found out there's a zero day. I mean, the the open SSL uh, issue from a few years back was a real heartbleed uh, was its quote name. But anyway, this was a big problem because it was in so many products and companies were, are we vulnerable? But they didn't even know, you know, because how do we know where are all of the different pieces of software that are running open SSL in it? Um, so they had to then go and look at, at their own stuff, talk to all their vendors. It was a big mess. Are we better? Well, that was years ago. We're fine now. Everybody knows what's what. Do we, though? Because the same fire drill just happened a couple of weeks ago with Log4j. So you want to know what's in what and how you're using it, both when you acquire it to make sure you're making good acquisitions or good builds, but also so that when something goes sideways like Log4j, you can immediately say, this is all the stuff we've built where we're using it, we've got it all updated, and this is all the stuff that we've purchased or have subscriptions for from our third parties, and we know that they're updated too. So that's where that that insight and that line of sight of of what you're using where really helps you in runtime for resiliency and security. Yeah. And that's not, you know, the sexy cybersecurity conversation, right? That it's that. (laughs) But it's it's the work that needs to be done so that when that Log4j happens, you are resilient and able to just move forward without a huge impact, right? And, you know, I think also, given when Log4j occurred, um, I can say it was actually sexy for some people that were very prepared and, and had really good lists of their dependencies and knew where they needed to, to go and patch. Yes. Because they were they were going to holiday parties and getting enough sleep and being all ready for, <laughs> you know, for what they were doing over the, the end of the year, as opposed to some other people that were literally not sleeping for days at a time and not able to be with their families or to go out to parties. So there was a sexy element to being prepared, I would say. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I just had that conversation with Caroline Wong when we did our advisory board conversations. And she's like, you know, we, we tend to hold up those that spend the sleepless nights responding but I think, you know, we really want to be celebrating those who did the preparation and, and that's how you're able to spend the time with those holiday hours with family and loved ones yeah. instead of responding to incidents. And, and so, no Diana, shame, by the way, for anybody is, that wasn't prepared. I just didn't want to right, say that. Right. Like, I didn't mean, to, I don't mean to shame yeah. anybody because, yeah. No, you you yeah. both said it elegantly. I think what we ought to remember is, and what I've seen as a shift is, you know, that 
even as, as recent as three years ago, you did not see in incident management a standing placeholder discussion for supply chain. I think today's yeah. incident management methodologies have put supply chain as a critical ask each and every time. And so that is a marked improvement where at least it's at the table, and it may very well be that it's not impactful, but asking the question is step one, but without the preparedness to have the information, all you're doing is sitting there saying, great, what's the impact on the supply chain? If the answer is we have no bloody clue, that's not a great <laughs> answer, right? And, and you can go yeah. address it manually, but you go through that twice, and I guarantee you, you will not uh, want to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So this has been an enlightening conversation, and I love when I'm able to follow along and understand. So I appreciate that very much. You've given our listeners a lot of good advice. Before we wrap up, do either of you have any additional parting words of wisdom you'd like to share? Mine would be, I know that we're, we want full automation, but Right now, most companies aren't there yet, so don't be afraid to create a process and get it in place now because this isn't about waiting for perfect. This is about actually getting it started in your organization. And talk to your developers, and if you've got really smart uh, dev leads and really smart procurement that they kind of keep a lot of this in their head, help them to get it out of their head and into some shared repository so that when the next log4j comes down the pike, you've actually got something that everybody has worked on that you can go to and, and look at. And again, most importantly, we're not at full automation, but don't let that stop you from getting started and getting some kind of program in place now to manage your, your supply chain, especially in software, which has been kind of left off from a lot of companies. Yeah, I, let me pivot off of that and say two words, information sharing. It's okay to do, mm. and not only is it okay, we should do it. There is still some reticence despite the world in which we operate where we have crowdsourcing and open source software, the reality there is still a reticence to do that and we need to eliminate that from our culture as a community because that will get us started in the right way as Diana just articulated because I'm going to hold out for Nirvana, but I am a practical person with my feet firmly on the ground. We have to start somewhere and that starts with information sharing. Yeah, I love that. That's great, great guidance from both of you. Diana, Edna, thank you so much for joining us today. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. To find products and solutions related to protecting data and the supply chain, we invite you to visit rsaconference.com forward slash marketplace. Here you'll find an entire ecosystem of cybersecurity vendors and service providers who can assist you with your specific needs. Please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC and be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year-round. Thank you all. Have a great day.